This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Did you know that the first tunnel was made by the Egyptians and the Babylonians over 4,000 years ago? And this served the purpose of connecting two buildings in Babylon. Well, tunnel engineering is one of the most interesting disciplines of engineering, but there are a lot of factors to consider when selecting the most appropriate method for a particular tunnel. That's why in this episode, as a part of our tunneling series, we'll be talking with Dr. Conrad Felice, who's the managing principal at CW Felice LLC, as well as an adjunct professor of civil engineering at the University of Florida. We'll be talking about soft ground tunneling projects, as well as his experience working with design build projects and industry associations. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to share some breaking news. EMI is excited to announce the launch of two new podcasts on the Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The AEC Engineering and Technology Podcast will provide information about technology in the AEC industry, architecture, engineering, and construction. And the Engineering Project Management Podcast will focus on career advice and success stories for project managers in the engineering industry. You can check them both out on EMI's website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org forward slash content. So with that, let's jump right into today's episode. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the show, Conrad. How are you doing? I am well this Monday morning. Thank you. So it would be helpful if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what is it that you do on a daily basis? Be happy to. I'm a geotechnical, geostructural engineer, and uh, most of my day is occupied uh, working for the state of Washington on their design build programs on the 405 and the 509 gateway projects. On those projects, I am the lead technical design build manager for the build out of those projects within the program. And that encompasses everything from conceptual design uh, through the procurement phase, as well as during construction. And I understand that you were the immediate 
past chair of the Tunnel and Underground Structures Committee of Transportation Research Board, TRB. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that committee does and how does that help the tunneling industry? TRB is an organization associated with the National Academy of Sciences, and uh, it has an annual meeting that is quite large. Uh, It's up to nearly 15,000 attendees early in the month of January, and encompasses all aspects of transportation, planning, uh, design, and execution through construction. The Tunnel and Underground Structures Committee focuses on just that, tunnels and underground structures. And that committee promotes and advances both research and design issues related to the safety and development of underground works. It could be metro systems. It could be rail tunnels. Lately, a lot of focus been on safety issues uh, in the event of fire. Uh, So life safety components and how to evacuate uh, the traveling public safely. And how long did you you serve as the chair of that board? Those appointments are for two, three-year terms, uh, so six years total. What happens after that? I mean, do you have emeritus for some time? or You just continue participating as a committee member, or uh, in this case, I've joined uh, another committee uh, to participate at the TRB in both identifying and implementing research concepts uh, in the transportation market. Thank you so much for your service. We uh, talk a lot about that on the show, just uh, especially when we have folks that are earlier in their career and they say, you know, what are the next things I should do once I learn how to be a geotech? And, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, giving back to the professional societies and, and figure out a way to contribute to the advancement of what we're doing these, uh, in these realms of geotechnical engineering. So thank you for that. Now, I understand you've also worked on several soft ground tunnel projects in the past. Can you tell us how a tunnel is built in soft ground? such as in clay, silt, sand, gravel, and mud? How does that compare to a tunnel in hard rock? And again, you may say that's why are you asking me that, but there are people that are still in school that that have that question. So uh, please let us know. Tunneling is a unique discipline within the civil engineering field and the geostructural profession. Uh, It really has a number of very unique challenges. And as you can imagine, tunnels can be built in very hard rock as well as very soft soils. You know, existing uh, facilities are all over the world, and geology plays a very large role. In the soft ground market, we've had a number of advances in mechanized excavation. If you have longer tunnels, let's say greater than a kilometer in length, uh, typically these will be done uh, both smaller and larger diameters with tunnel boring machines. And these are very advanced underground manufacturing facilities, uh, in essence, that will not only excavate the tunnel uh, through these differing ground conditions and water pressure conditions, but also erect the segments in the liner system as it excavates. And these are for both transportation as well as water tunnels all over the world. And these structures are they're, they're massive. Every time I've been next to a tunnel boring machine, I feel so tiny, like a little ant. (laughs) I had the opportunity to go in one this past weekend uh, with a project under construction in Vancouver, Washington. Very exciting construction, and uh, you'd be surprised how tight the space gets at at the front of these tunnel boring machines. And what are some of the factors that, that one has to consider when selecting the most appropriate method for a particular tunnel? Ground conditions trump everything. Understanding whether the material is hard, raveling, running sands, the different geologic and soil strata conditions will always govern what the choice is. Again, something like a length of over a kilometer, it's generally a mechanized system just due to cost. 
uh, if you're doing cross passages for things like safety or other components, that will be some type of a hand or conventional excavation, sequential excavation, potentially, uh, sometimes known as the new Austrian tunneling method. I imagine that, you know, when you're working on a project like this, as you said, kilometer long, what goes into maintaining product documentation? What types of things are you, are you considering there? Documentation spans a range of things these days. Uh, in the current procurement world where design build is the dominant use of uh, procurement methodology, you really have submittals that are focused on design. And the engineering switches from being consulting to design engineering. So submittals have to be very attentive to contract language, demand requirements of the submittals. And you're no longer imprecise in your language. Uh, the documentation really is avoiding words like approximate or significant. It's what is it that you're going to design? How big is it going to be? What are the pressures? And be very specific. Documentation in today's environment needs to move more in that direction as opposed to the consulting reports where you may or may not be involved in the construction. But in these design build projects, you're really engaged uh, through construction and what's going to be built. So it really is precision and documentation and paying attention to the contract requirements and the contract requirements in your local area. The large firms are even smaller getting involved in projects all over the U.S. and requirements change. And you really need to be attentive to what those requirements are. That makes a lot of sense, especially if you're getting into a new area. I mean, there's, there's a lot of value of already knowing how to do things in that local jurisdiction. And it probably explains why you know, some people take the route of acquisition to make sure you know what you're doing in that area. Sometimes it really pays to know the local conditions and what the local governing requirements are, both at the design manuals for the state, in addition to what the national uh, level uh, ASHTO and FHWA requirements are. So it's really a broad requirement to understand what's really needed in these projects. And Dr. Fleece, I understand that you're a strong believer in reading contracts properly. And I know that you know, engineering students, sometimes we don't really learn much about contracts until we're design professionals. But uh, how has doing this helped in your engineering projects that you've been responsible for or that you've worked on? First and foremost, it keeps you out of trouble. The contract is the governing documents that you must adhere to. And again, I'll revert back to these design build jobs where limited information is provided and the contract really governs what it is that you need to do. Many of us are now involved in pre-award work where we have to work with the contractors developing cost estimates and design alternatives. And the contract really governs what's required as well as the local conditions. Sometimes you'll see requirements at the national level that will be at odds with the local requirements. So the contract will spell out what those local requirements are. And if you start developing design submittals after award and they are not addressing all of those contract requirements, you as the geostructural or geotechnical engineer on the project could have significant instant schedule impacts to the overall project. So reading the contract, understanding the terms and conditions and what's required is really essential to being a good team member on these alternative procurement projects. You know, I think about contracts and then you know, my brain almost immediately goes towards risk. And when I think about geotechnical engineering and geostructural engineering and tunneling and putting a hole in the ground, I think about risk. Well, what would you say, as far as the importance of risk and taking risk in your career, what comes to mind there for you? 
taking risk in your career, uh, it really comes down to personal choices and where you would like your career to go. The young engineers that I've mentored over the years, I've always encouraged them to stretch themselves, take on those responsibilities and challenges that are a little beyond what you think your current capabilities are. It gives you the opportunity to learn, dive into professional development, read some of those papers, learn from those mentors and others on the project that have a large number of years of experience that you can draw from. It'll make you a much better professional and it'll really enhance your career as you move forward. And if for someone that uh, may be averse to taking risks, what would you say uh, to maybe entice them a little bit <laughs> or pique their curiosity a little bit? Everybody's got their own comfort zone. If you feel like you're uncomfortable taking that risk, that's probably a good time to take one. I think you'll find that challenge very, very rewarding. You'll learn things that you maybe have not didn't think you could do. It'll expose you to different areas of design and construction that will certainly make you a better engineer going into the future, whatever path you take, moving into management and understanding the aspects of, of what it takes to procure, develop, and construct a project, or strictly on the technical side as being a, a broader, more well-rounded engineer that you understand the implications of what you're doing and how it relates to the other disciplines. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about industry associations. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your participation in industry associations and professional development and how has it benefited your engineering career? Because, you know, I think about what it's done for others, but what has it done for your career? It's had an enormous benefit for my career in terms of exposure to a range of, of individuals across different disciplines, as well as geography. Uh, very early on, I participated in uh, ASCE committees, both as session chairs, providing papers, developing sessions. And I've continued that through different organizations, whether it's the Transportation Research Board, uh, the Deep Foundations Institute, the International Tunneling Association, or the Underground Construction Association. These are volunteer organizations, but the people you meet, uh, the breadth of things that you're introduced to brings you not only colleagues, but professional opportunities that you may not have even be aware of as you move along your career, your professional timeline. So I encourage everyone to get involved early, sustain that commitment uh, in an organization that fits you. And there's a number out there for either for construction or the design or the academic side or the blending of all three. We've got a very diverse industry. It involves suppliers, contractors, designers, and everybody has a role in understanding and meeting these people who participate makes you a better engineer and gives you an appreciation of uh, other people's uh, input to the industry that if you don't participate, you may not get. And also it minimizes your exposure. Uh, if you limit yourself to just very local project work or other things, uh, you're really missing out on what others can contribute to your professional development and career opportunities. That's so true. And and you hinted at it. I mean, no matter where you are in your career, there's a place for you in one of these organizations, whether you're, you know, just starting out mid-season professional or even on the tail end of the profession, right? It's like there's a spot for everybody. So uh, I really hope that uh, folks that are listening in and are watching are considering that. So thank you for that. Well, before we take our break, what's the final piece of advice you'd like to give to some of the geotechnical engineers that are listening in here? Broaden yourself beyond pure geotechnical engineering. Our projects are really very integrated these days. 
And, you know, one of the failings that I see are stovepiping or very narrow focus on your project part. That's really going to be a detriment. You really have to understand your hydraulics, your environmental, your structural components. Uh, if you're designing something in or on the ground, uh, you've got a large role to play. But that's going to be handed off to a structural engineer or an environmental individual for permitting processes. And you really need to understand and have an appreciation for what they do. The last thing you want to say to someone is it's somebody else's problem or some other discipline will take care of that. You really want to be integrated and have a very strong appreciation for cross-discipline requirements and working with them closely. That's great. We want to remain curious and make sure we know what others are doing and not just what we're doing. It does help to make a better team experience and collaborative experience. All right. Well, we're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Conrad in our Career Factor Safety End segment. Stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Dr. Conrad Felice, the managing principal at CW Felice LLC. Conrad, you've already had a very successful career. And when you look back on your career, can you think of one thing you implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? There are two things that come to mind. I'm uh, an Air Force veteran. I spent 27 years between active and reserve duty. And one of the things that I really did not want to do, but was given the uh, assignment to accomplish, was to go overseas and work in Belgium. Being exposed to different cultures, different ways of doing things, had an enormous impact uh, and appreciation for that. Not everything is done the way we do it here. And there's a lot to be learned from others, uh, both in their culture and their design practices. That was really reinforced and driven home when I had the opportunity to work on a project in India in the city of Mumbai or, Mom or Bombay, as it was known once. And this was a signature project for the country. It involved everything from all of the in-water work for the bathymetry and development of the foundation design through construction. And you were immersed in the culture. You were immersed in their design practices, their codes and requirements, their ways of construction, the international perspective and in bringing people from all over the world to construct and build this really significant project for the country. And that gives you a much broader breadth of knowledge and appreciation for things. And if there was a factor of safety in my career, it was really that broad exposure to the international practices and what goes on around the world outside the boundaries of the United States. Thank you so much for your service, first off. And we're in this season of veterans. They want to make sure that uh, we acknowledge you. Thank you so much for that. And also thank you for that, that counsel. You know, we have to think bigger than where we are now. We have to. You shared a lot of good stuff here. <laughs> we want to thank you for coming on the show and all the great insights that you shared. And I know that there's information here and advice that's going to be helpful to our listeners and viewers. Now, if somebody's watching or somebody's listening, they say, wow, how can I reach out to them? Are you on social media or an email you want to share so that we can include in the show notes? I am on LinkedIn and be happy to respond there. Uh, so that's probably the, the social media platform of, of most common. Uh, certainly, my email is always open and available, uh, conrad.felice at cwfeliceLLC.com also. Well, thank you so much. This is great.
I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 63, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best and all of your geotechnical engineer endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.